This is Amanda from Cowboy Ventures. And this is Tim from Essence VC. This is the Open Source Startup Podcast. <laughs> we are super excited to have Martin on the Open Source Startup Podcast. He is the founder of a company called Chronosphere, which sits on top of the open source project M3, which came out of Uber. And we'll get some history on how that started at Uber and how it operates now. And despite being a very young company, Chronosphere has raised $250 million, I think, at this point. A little bit more than that, yes. <laughs> From awesome funds like Lux and Greylock and Addition and Founders Fund. And we are just super excited to have him on the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our chat today. Awesome. So let's go back to the very beginning and the origin story behind M3 and how it kind of came about and we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So as you rightly pointed out earlier, did start at, at Uber around 2014, 2015. And really what triggered it was Uber's decision at a top level across the engineering organization to go microservices and container-based environments. That's what really triggered it. This is pre-Kubernetes. Mesos was, I think, the, the, the platform of choice back then for the company. And really, Uber saw a lot of the advantages of that. And obviously, other companies like Netflix and, and Google and Facebook made that architecture fairly popular, and they wanted to follow suit. So that really kicked off all of this. And, and once I had made that decision and we were starting to adopt this architecture, what we realized was that all of these solutions we had for a monitoring, and back then there wasn't even observability, it was just monitoring back then, it wasn't well suited for this new type of architecture, right? Like it was really, you're trying to get the same things out of monitoring, you're trying to see when things break and monitor things, I guess. But really, because the architecture changed so much, the requirements changed a lot. And we realized all the existing tools, whether they were open source and we, we were using a bunch of them already, or a lot of these sort of vended APM tools weren't really applicable for this new environment. And that's what really spawned everything else off. So uh, the first thing we did was we reached out to the few companies that had solved this problem before for this new architecture at Google, Facebook, and Netflix. And they really told us, hey, we built our own solution. That's, that's the way they got around the problem. And that sort of set us down this path of, okay, we, we probably need to also solve this ourselves. And again, a lot of that stuff was not open sourced back then. So that was the, the real sort of initial, I would say, impetus to even kick off the project. Uh, and I'll say one of the very early decisions we made that was, it turned out to be great eventually for us was that uh, not only did we build this new solution that ended up being M3, but we did it in open source from day one, which is very interesting. And why open source for you and your team specifically? What was really the driving force behind that? I'd say there was an initial driving force and then there were a bunch of added side effect benefits that we never thought about that came about uh, from that. But the initial reasoning for us was honestly we looked at the size of the engineering teams um, that had built this before at these other companies and they were massive they were like high tens or hundreds of engineers and we were like okay our team is you know five to ten people and we run open source just off the shelf open source tech at that point and, and we knew we needed a huge team to go build our own and we knew that the the level of talent we needed probably came from a similar sized tech company so honestly one of the main reasons for open sourcing in the first place was a way of attracting talent more than anything else and sort of a way for these engineers to come in and, and, and build this, but also sort of build it in open source and sort of share it with the world and share off, you know, the, the work that, that they're doing. That just so happened to line up very nicely to how sort of Uber as a whole company, I would say, thought about engineering and showing off their sort of engineering talent, just a very sort of open source friendly company. So, so that aligned nicely with the company, but that was the main reason for it in the first place. One of the very first side effects we saw 
as a result of, of open sourcing it was that very quickly we realized as soon as other companies started to use our tech, the requirements changed and we were almost building something for multiple environments, multiple sets of end users, multiple use cases, things that we didn't even have inside Uber. And I think that only fed to making the open source solution can imagine more robust, more generally applicable and not sort of tailor-made for Uber. So that was one of the immediate side effects that we saw from open sourcing, which was fantastic. And so you talk about the architecture changes that leads you to open source solution doesn't work at all. What about an open source solution that doesn't work? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So it really comes back down to, as I mentioned, the requirements more than anything else, right? So putting aside what the existing solutions did, if you just look at the difference in architecture from a pre-microservices container-based world to a post-world. It's like you used to have monolithic applications deployed probably once every few weeks or quarter or something like that, running on VMs. Everything was very long-lived static, right? Like something would get deployed, it would just run on that uh, machine perhaps for a certain period of time, emitting the same data more than anything else. So that just created a, a different set of requirements and sort of needs from a system of, of, of viewing that. If you think about microservices on, on container-based architecture, A, a lot more smaller moving parts, right? And each of these smaller moving parts are producing as much perhaps or needs as much monitoring as your large monolithic applications. Same at the infrastructure level, like each container now, you still need to look at the CPU usage, the memory usage, the disk for every container, but you have so many of them running per VM. So just the, the volume is a huge difference there. And then on top of that, everything's ephemeral. Like you do a deployment multiple times a day now. As soon as you do a deployment, new pod IDs, like new container IDs, everything is sort of different from like an ephemeral nature as well. So when you're designing for that system, you can imagine the base assumption you go into designing that system is you used to think, okay, everything is very static and you designed around the data being very static to a completely different design where you assume the underlying data is very ephemeral and your sort of requirements even on the data itself is very different. So perhaps before on a VM-based world, it made sense to keep things for a year. And you, you see that a lot of solutions out there, by default, everything is sold for 13 months. And that used to make sense. These days, again, you don't really need, let's say, the container ID a year from now. You perhaps need some view of that in an aggregate form, but you really only need that level of detail for like an hour or two, perhaps during the deployment. And when, and when you deploy again, you don't really need that level of detail for the historical data there. So it's more like those fundamental requirements change so much and designing with, with that in mind, you just, it's really hard to, to design for one world and then repurpose it for something else. All right. So, so that that is really the underlying reason why we had to build something fairly different. So I remember when we even chatted before, I remember when you actually even before we started a company around this, you said there's actually quite a lot of community members and people are actually companies around the world using you. But how do you find M3 in the first place? I remember there's a blog post. And also, did they just clone it down and just use open source? Or like, yeah. how does even large companies outside of Uber can able to run this? It doesn't sound like a simple thing to run, actually. Yeah, that is a, a very good question. To your first question, how they found it, I, I don't exactly know. You know, it wasn't really part of our uh, direct mission in the team to, to make this a popular open source project. It definitely was something we, we threw out there and developed in open source. I remember for the first, I think almost three years of the project, we had the, like the, the header on the landing page of GitHub is like, this is alpha software, like use at your own risk, like, you know, like no guarantees supplied or anything like that. And yet companies were using it. I think for us, that was just a function of 
these big companies in particular running into the exact same shift, exact same problem, and them not seeing anything available there in open source, which probably led them to look harder for M3 more than anything else. I suspect is why it became popular. It was the only thing that solved that problem at that particular scale. 100%, it was definitely hard to operate at first. And again, our team didn't think about, hey, let's make this a really consumable piece of technology was really about, hey, let's solve the hard problems first. But I think this is where as soon as we started to get engagement from the community, that drove this, right? To give you some examples here, the rest of the world was really moving on to Kubernetes probably about 2017, 2018. And, and Uber was still very fixed in, in Mesos back then, right? And, and yet we knew the community was moving that way. And there was a lot of demand for like, hey, could you write a Kubernetes operator and, and, and things like that. So we just had, sort of had to like fulfill these additional requirements from the community because a lot of companies sort of started to depend on it. I'll say a lot of the early companies that used it, definitely they weren't great user guides. And we sort of fixed that up over time by hiring people to go do that. But like they had to just figure a lot of stuff out themselves. And I think generally that's probably not a great place for a project to be in to, to, to get mass adoption. I think we were lucky because there wasn't much choice out there for anybody. I'd love to talk a bit about the history of how M3 actually turned into Chronosphere. So I believe the project predated you at Uber, is that correct? Correct, yes. So myself, my co-founder and core team here worked on the project for over four years at Uber. And then we left in about 2019, two and a half years ago, to found Chronosphere. And yes, the, the M3 project was part of Uber and open source for many years. Yes. What we sort of realized probably coming out of 2018, 2019 is that okay, it wasn't just the, the big companies in the world. It was like, wait, the whole industry was going to move and like onto Kubernetes. And that sort of won the war. And Tim, I think you were from Mesosphere. So apologies for that. But it seemed like that's where the, uh, the world was moving towards, right? So we're like, oh, wow. Like, it's not just a select few large companies are going to have this problem. Everybody in the world is going to probably have this problem sooner or later. And we just so happen to, again, this is, Sheer, sheer blind luck or like we just happened to design this for uber because we needed it back then and it just sort of grew from there so it was a combination of that and knowing that there was a problem to be solved in the world and m3 was a critical piece of that but m3 itself is not really a product it's a it's a piece of technology it's a storage tech right it's like it's a time series a database it's not a, a product that you can really consume and all the companies that were adopting that technology that a whole team that were building really internal products around that right so we knew that there was going to be a, a demand for this type of solution that, that wasn't going to be met. And then at the same time, I'll say probably about 2018, 2019, Uber wasn't uh, perhaps growing as much as a business anymore. And sort of we had solved the internal problem there. So there wasn't a lot of huge demand for us to, you know, you can imagine, hey, we have to redesign everything again because there's another 10x scale coming or something like that. So we were sort of wrapping up our mission internally there. And it just seemed like a great time to sort of uh, okay, we've solved the problem for Uber now. The solution is out there. People are starting to adopt it. Let's sort of take the solution and make it more widespread. But definitely from day one at Chronosphere, we were trying to build a product on top of the open source stack as opposed to just have a hosted version or something like that because the, the open source stack in itself doesn't solve the problem for a user. It's a, it's a key piece of the, of the solution, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. And how did you actually work with Uber? And I noticed that you co-govern M3 with Uber, but how did that process work? Because a lot of folks who listen to our podcast who are founders, it might be a little bit confusing on how that even works if you start an open source project or you work on one at a company. That is a great question. So I'd say that the first thing is that the project originally 
it was always open source under the Apache Tuo license. So it's a very sort of permissive license. And Uber as a company, I guess, you know, they are not in the infrastructure space at all. And, and again, their reasons for open sourcing software was mostly about the engineering brand. So that was maintained through this. Unlike some of the other projects, like let's say Jaeger, the distributed tracing project also came out of, of Uber. Um, that one was actually donated to a foundation and that you can imagine makes things a little bit different because technically the foundation owns it uh, and whatnot. M3 was actually not donated to a foundation. So it was sort of just kept open source under a very permissive license, but Uber owned a lot of the, you can imagine the trademarks to the piece of software. So when we left, we wanted to continue because not only did we want to build the product on top, we definitely wanted to continue iterating the open source project and sort of continue supporting the, the broader community. And it just so happened that a lot of the core contributors came over to Chronosphere as well. So at that point, we, we sort of approached Uber and said, hey, it's, it's really up to them because they technically own the project. If we're going to make the majority of the contributions, I would say we would like some seat at the table on the governing body, just so we have some saying where the project is going. If not, we were like, it's all good. We're happy to sort of fork the project and sort of just go on our merry way. It doesn't really matter to us because we're not trying to sell M3 to folks out there. But, you know, I think they looked at the situation and were very nice in maintaining that relationship and sort of allowing us to co-govern the project with them. And of course, you know, both companies upstream changes to the project that is used by both companies uh, right now. It's a very amicable relationship from that perspective, but yeah. And so going back to the product, back in 2019 is where you guys started, even the company. And you know, back in those days, right, time series databases and the way to store all these metrics, I think there's not as many companies out there selling similar things like this. I mean, there was general time series database. How were you actually thinking about it when you start yeah. off a company? Because you know you already have people using open source, using off the shelf, whatever the way they can collab with something together, right? You raise something and you want to start a company. What was the first thing you had to figure out? No, that's 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 a great question. It was definitely something that was very complex. It wasn't something that it was obvious to us or anything like that when we started, right? So I think when we started, what myself and my co-founder did was we sort of looked at where we wanted the company to end up and perhaps the product to end up one day and sort of work backwards from there more, more than anything else, right? And I think this is, as you said, there's a lot of options here and there's no clear answer for any open core company or open source piece of tech. I think for us, and I'll explain why, just like for, for us in our industry and the type of data we deal with, like the journey that we went on made sense, but it's not necessarily true for everybody. So there was a couple of things at first. First was what I said earlier, where the time series database isn't the solution that people want. People don't want a time series database, whether to run it themselves or to host it. What they really want is a particular problem, application of that and, and storage of that data, but they, they, they really want, wanted a, a solution. And we, we figured that out fairly early, right? Like nobody was running M3 by itself. It was always, and generally I'd say 99.9% .9 of cases, it was the backend for a, a monitoring solution inside companies, right? So we're like, okay, People want that, but they don't want a time series database per se. So that sort of moved us away from offering time series database as a service and more towards a monitoring product. Uh, and then we looked at sort of the, perhaps your classic open core companies like an Elastic, a, a Mongo. And we looked at those companies and were like, okay, how did they evolve their businesses over time? And what is a nice open core business model? And we realized that regardless of their journey, a lot of them went through like support, enterprise version, et cetera, licensing and all of that stuff. They all were gravitating towards SaaS and SaaS first and SaaS only, right? And when we looked at that, 
not just because that's what they were doing, but when we looked at that, both as a how someone may consume monitoring data or a monitoring service, that sort of made sense to us. Uh, because if you think about it in our domain, the monitoring data is really metadata about your infrastructure, right? It's, it's a great destination of data more than anything else. It's not like it's tied in with every step of your workflow inside your other systems or something like that. It's generally metadata about your systems and your business, and it needs to go to a destination and the end users need to interact with it. So for this type of use case, SaaS seemed perfect, right? And I think a, a Datadog, luckily for, for us, already proved that out that SaaS is, is a perfect sort of business model there. So I think those were the things that led us down that path. And then the next question was just, okay, well, can we just go to SaaS straight away or do we need to go through this mode of like support, enterprise support, enterprise version, et cetera. And luckily for us, we made a bet that, hey, let's just go to SaaS straight away. We just think that that's where the world is going to sort of end up a little bit. I think what's also unique, and again, this is, so this is not a universal answer to anybody out there trying to think about doing this with projects. I think for a lot of projects out there, perhaps it does make sense to do the license model or the support model or, or something like that. It really depends on your use case. The other thing I think that's interesting about monitoring and observability in particular is that this is the thing that actually tells you whether your infrastructure is operating correctly or not. I was actually running that solution on the infrastructure it's meant to be looking after is a pretty bad circular dependency there, right? It's like if your region goes down in your cloud provider and your monitoring was running in that region, nothing's going to tell you that your region's gone down. Nothing's going to tell you how your business is doing. Clearly something's bad because the region's gone down, right? But you have no visibility of that. So I think, again, in, in our space, it just made more sense to have that data both be a destination in SaaS and, and honestly, one step further than that is what we do here at Chronosphere is we actually work with our customers to locate that data in a different cloud provider to where they run production so that if they ever take a major production here due to a cloud provider, because I feel like where the world is going towards is everybody depends on a cloud provider one way or another, right? And sort of decouple that was a huge advantage point as well. But I think that's unique to us and that's what it made our decision much easier. I think for a lot of other technologies out there, depending on their domain, how people want to use their service, maybe SaaS is the right solution. Maybe it's not. Maybe actually on-premise makes a ton more sense. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah, I guess one question, because if you're running especially a different cloud provider and the whole point of M3 is actually a much more scalable way to store and retrieve metrics, like cost becomes a huge problem. The, the cost efficiency of having it in a sync cloud provider, because let alone the same region, now you're going cross cloud plus the huge lot of more data you're actually storing and retrieving, how do you actually able to compete or even come up with a price model that makes sense for your customers? Yeah, so I would say that there's a couple of things that we do there. On, on the first part, I think, you know, when you talk to companies about SaaS versus on-premise, of course, the sort of total cost comes up as a question. One of the first things we get asked actually is always about the network egress charges because the cloud providers control that and they charge people on egress and not ingress. It just so happens that for monitoring the relative egress cost, because you can do some perhaps tricks on the uh, compression side of that, thus that you, know, you, you can imagine for time series data, you're generally measuring similar things again and again. So there's a particular things you can do on compression on the way out that makes the network egress of that data much smaller and much cheaper to get out and into a different location. But that's one part of the problem. 
But the second thing that works out nicely for our use case is that generally when you query the data, because you also have to go get it from another place as well, right? And sort of Cronus will, will be absorbing the cost of egressing that data back to the customers. What we notice in our use case is if you think about like the end user use case of our data, you may be doing something like, hey, go get me the sum of all of my CPU usage across a crazy large Kubernetes cluster, right? Expensive query on the back end. But actually um, what we find is that end users never want all the raw results. What they want is like, find me the sum or the average or something like that, right? So actually what we find is that in our use case, the egress back to the user is actually quite low. The ingress, we can do some tricks on to reduce that. So it's actually the transportation, the sending and retrieval of data doesn't actually cost very much at all. That helps a ton. And that cannot be said about all types of data, right? Like there are other types of data out there where that's hugely expensive and that's an issue. So, so we're lucky from that perspective. In terms of like the TCO cost of, you know, a company running this technology, the open source tech themselves and storing it there. Generally, I think what this comes down to is you, you can imagine, you know, if, if we were to run the same or just be like, who's running it? Generally, an actual a big uh, point that our customers bring up is because we target the top end of the market, so very large companies, they generally have very nice discounts that they get from their cloud providers that they've negotiated because they just spend a lot of money with a cloud provider, right? And Chronosphere perhaps doesn't get the same discounts. So in their mind, they're like, well, wait, if I run it, it technically will be a lot cheaper than if you ran it. And that was, I would say, a discussion topic amongst us and our customer base at the beginning, for sure. And we were attempting to sort of trade that off against, well, you know, the what is the additional, because it's not just the underlying infrastructure, but like now you need to fund engineers to go and run and maintain this thing. Engineers are quite uh, expensive. You have the circular dependency issue, like what's that going to cost you and whatnot. So, so a lot of that factored into it. But uh, what we realized over time is that, you know, to really make the cost problem not an issue for us here at Chronosphere, we actually forked the open source M3 project and we have a proprietary version ourselves that we don't sell or license or anything like that. We just use it underneath the covers at, at Chronosphere. So that also just helps us in tipping the scales of like, hey, if your total cost of solving this problem remains the same and you get these benefits from Chronosphere, like you know, it, it sort of makes a more of a no-brainer decision. But yeah, we did have to go down that path. And unlike other young open source-based companies, you have significant revenue as per all of the fundraising. So how do you balance your time and effort and how, how much is spent actually growing as a typical SaaS company would versus nurturing the community? And is it kind of the community stands alone now and you're operating kind of more like a typical SaaS company in the sense of, just trying to measure and maintain certain ARR targets or how do you kind of think about balancing the open source aspect of the business? I would say that for us, we're a little bit different from a company like Confluent or Elastic where it's almost like a customer's buying journey is you have to start with open source and at a certain point you upgrade. It's actually not true for us in M3. And if you think about M3, actually, when people start with monitoring, they don't start with M3. M3 is like built for larger scales of the world. When you're getting started, don't we actually recommend you don't run that. That's way too overkill. Per se. It's not the thing that everybody uses straight off, off the bat. So what people use there is Prometheus, and that's the sort of CNCF recommended single binary solution. And we recommend that as well. When you get started, use that, right? So a lot of our focus then shifts into, okay, well, how do we sort of help the broader Prometheus community and sort of help in fostering that a little bit? And then of course that makes its way into our product as well in terms of like compatibility with all the protocols there and things like that. So 
we're just slightly different from that perspective from a lot of other companies where you know generally a journey would be okay you always start off with prometheus and that's our recommendation at a certain point you can look at m3 if you want to but at that point you should also consider chronosphere here and again if the, the cost is going to be the same and, and we can solve the problems perhaps it's an attractive proposition and so one particular problem i think most open source startups face is they can't really just off the bat go sell to a large company even though they have some community or maybe even you are using it in some particular company not everybody will completely trust it sounds like from previous conversations you are going for large companies what are particular challenges did you guys face i don't know if i'd recommend that as the standard play for sure i'd say for us it made sense right if you look at the technology itself not only is it proven there it's really designed for the companies at the top end of the market right so so just it played to our strengths already and like people perhaps on you know you, you can imagine having three consistent copies of this data across three az's if you're just getting started you don't care about that you, you don't need these properties at all right so for us it was already suited for that and that just so happened to line up with what we believe is the end of the market that is looking for solutions around here right like if, if you look at the big play in the space the datadog they their go-to-market motion is really bottoms up and they really start with a lot of the small players whereas I haven't had as much success on the top of the market. So it sort of lined up well for the opportunity that, that we saw in the market and our technology really lined up uh, there. That plus the fact that everybody's adopting Kubernetes, that's just driving this sort of, at the top of the market is where people are adopting this. It's sort of driving the, the, the need for a solution like this, which sort of all lines up there. I'd say that for us, it's also unique in the sense that the project came out of a real world use case at Uber already at scale. So not just that, it's the fact that very early on, we had other companies like Walmart, Databrick, Tencent. The technology itself has been proven time and time again. And I think that's a huge help. And I don't really know how to perhaps replicate that, but perhaps if a project that came out of a big company, that, that helps a lot because aids the overall design, right? Like you don't design a system for something that can take, let's say, 2 billion rights a second if you don't have a requirement of doing that in the first place. You just don't, A, design for that. And, and B, it's not just you don't design for that. Like without the real world data and use case, it's all theoretical, right? You're like, I've theoretically designed for this and I have my test data, but real world is different, right? So I think we got lucky in the sense that the open source tech had proof points and multiple proof points as well. It wasn't just a one hit at Uber. It was like, hey, wait, we've, we've adapted this for all of these different companies in different industries. That helped at least, I would say, legitimize the underlying technology. And that helped in us convincing our early large customers take a bet on us for sure. I'd say the thing that impacted us from a business perspective is the fact that, you know, we, we dealing with the top end of the market, we probably like just, you can imagine our SLA requirement from day one was the best in the market. We didn't get there over time. We're just like, we have to be bulletproof from day one. We just offer the best SLAs in the industry. We went and got our soft two type two compliance, like within a year of creating the company, like no startup goes in and does that. It just seems crazy, but it forced us to go do these because we are going after that end of the market. And then of course, as you can imagine, once you get a few of these as proof points and whatnot, and also they love the product, they're happy to talk to others about their experience and that sort of helps with that. So it is tough. I think for, for us, it was, we were advantage from a unique situation from the history of the project at Uber and whatnot. I wouldn't perhaps, if you didn't have those advantage points, I wouldn't perhaps recommend going after the largest brands in the world. It's, it's, it's tough for sure. And it also means that you can't, you, you can imagine the way we iterate and deploy to our customers, far more slow paced and careful 
than perhaps a typical startup would, because again, we're, especially for the type of solution that we provide, reliability is is everything. So we can't really like choose, like experiment with our customers or anything like that. But yeah. Yeah, and your journey is so unique versus other open source companies that we talk to, because it almost seems in some ways open source was really important early on to validating the need and pain point and potential customers. But in some ways, it's not as critical now. Do you see less of an open source company today, in a sense, from like a positioning standpoint than it was maybe originally? I would say yes and no. And, you know, to your point, it is unique, but, but I see this pattern a lot, right? Like there's some piece of infrastructure that's proven in some real world use case in a company somewhere and like it spins off into a, a company. I see that pattern a lot for sure. So, 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 so I don't think that that's unique. The fact that we're not selling M3 as a, a hosted solution itself and we don't depend on, let's say, the success of the open source project for the success of Chronosphere. And, and as we move on, the relative need to lean back on the history of M3 is reduced over time. I think that is somewhat unique. I don't think for, for us as Chronosphere, that means that we want to shy away from, from open source because for us, open source, it played a huge role in the underlying technology and the development of that for sure. Um, but for us, open source is really what opened up the opportunity even for us as a company to even exist today in, in our current industry. And it's not just from that technology, right? Like if you look at what's happening in the broader observability industry, open source is really shaking things up a lot, right? It's it's forcing everybody, all of these proprietary vendors to adopt one set of open source standards. And that is fantastic for new players like us because great, like all of our proprietary moats have been reduced, which is great for us, but it's also great for consumers and for customers, right? It means that, okay, they now don't need to lock themselves into one vendor necessarily. They instrument all of their applications in one open source standard and use one open source query language. So the end user interface is completely open source and not locked in. And then they can like pick and choose which vendors they want on the back end. And the vendors really have to differentiate themselves back there. So I think like if you look at open source in general, it's, it's helped Chronosphere far more than just the M3 project. It's really allowed us to exist and have an opportunity right now. And because of that, you know, you can imagine we're doubling down on these standards. We're doubling down on like, hey, actually, we think that these standards are the way forward because they're the best for the customer. Of course, they're great for us as a new player to disrupt the market, but they're great for the customers um, as well. So I don't think we will be shying away and I don't think we won't be shying away from open source. It's just that you're correct in calling out that the success of the open source M3 project long-term doesn't necessarily dictate the success of Chronosphere. And that is perhaps different from other companies that is other open core companies that have existed before. M3 started just metrics, right? Now looking at the Chronosphere, the product actually incorporates more than just metrics. Talk about a little bit of journey because I think obviously you can look at just more features added. A lot of times when you look at infra companies and products, it's just not so obvious what are the right features. How do you discover, okay, we can't just do metrics, right? We got to add. Is that an obvious choice or this is like a, a six to 12 months of like long deliberation? Because Uber is doing things one way, right? Not jumping on the real world. How did you go from that to there? I would say that it was both obvious and not obvious at the same time. And, and I'll explain why. I think if you look at the space that we're in, it's clearly obvious to everybody in the space. There's three data types, right? There's like, there's logs and that's been around for a very long time. There's metrics that's been around for a very long time. And then there's distributed traces. And that's more recent because of this breakup into microservices, right? So, so that was very clear 
it's been very clear for a very long time, in fact, and metrics has been a need for that for probably 20 plus years or so, right? And I think the mistake and perhaps the, the thing that we learned from our journey at Uber, even when we we're building this at Uber, we knew, oh, hey, we needed each of these. And I think the mistake that we made and the learning that we made is like thinking that, okay, if I just have a logging backend and a metrics backend and some distributed trace backend, like I'm done. Like I've got all three, I have the trifecta, like I have observability. And what we really figured out, and that's how we built it at Uber, like three distinct systems. Focus was really just about, okay, like scale the backend, like you can handle the data. We solved the problem. And very quickly, we realized that that wasn't true. It's not that they're the three wrong data types or anything like that. It's just that like, we needed to think about it differently. So when we started at Chronosphere, out of those three pieces, we went with the metrics first because A, we thought M3 was the most differentiated backend piece of technology there that existed. But also that metrics data, like if we, if we look at the, what an end user, like what does an engineer want to get out of an observability system, like, And when we looked at that problem, metrics started first. It is the first thing that we need to go solve because in our mind, nobody randomly goes and looks through logs if they don't know that something's wrong. Nobody randomly looks for distributed traces if they don't know that anything is wrong, right? Like the very first thing anybody needs, because like nobody is, everybody has a lot of things to do. And nobody's randomly going to look for problems. It's always that you have to be notified first that something is wrong, right? And to get notified has to be metric data. Even if it was originally produced as logs, you convert it to metrics. It has to be metric data that goes and does that. So when solved that problem first with M3 and monitoring. And with that, you can imagine you have your dashboards, and you can create your alerts off of that. And you can really start solving the problem. Like, okay, I, I know when something's gone wrong, I can like monitor it and I know when it's gone wrong. And when it does go wrong, I can look at a dashboard, look at the trend over time and start breaking down the problem a little bit. And you solve in, in my mind, at least the first part of that problem. And then you think, of, okay, well, what about logs and traces? Clearly they're useful. When do I need them? And those are definitely used later on in the problem solving phase, right? So it's like they're used when you want even more details. Like, okay, cool. I know that this problem happened on this host and my P99 spiked, great. Now give me more details. Like what was the request ID? Who was the user? Like what are the logs, right? So it was natural for us to then go solve that part of the problem. So that sort of dictated the order in which we went and solved these things. But when we looked to solve that problem, it wasn't just, hey, let's just tack on, like, let's say, Jaeger came out of the observability team at Uber, right? It wasn't just like, oh, hey, we have hosted Jaeger now and boom, that's your problem solved. We're like, actually, okay, well, clearly distributed traces provides a lot of value. Are we getting that value out of a standalone Jaeger installment? And our assessment was no. Like, even though this came from the same team, we were like, we're not getting the value out of it at all. How do we then ingest this type of data into our platform, which it accepts today? But how do we use that not just to do root cause analysis well, how do we do that seamlessly from the existing experience we have already? Uh, and not just that, how do we take the distributed traces and make notifications better and whatnot? So the way we think about it is slightly different. It's not just like, here's another feature or add-on. It's like, here's another data type that all of our features have access to. Great, like you are the alerting team at Chronosphere. Now you have access, not just to metric data, but you have access to distributed trace data. How do you make alerting better with this data exists. If it doesn't exist, it's fine. It doesn't exist. You know, alerting is what alerting is. So we think about it differently that way, I guess, and, and sort of like it's additional capabilities that is, is mostly driven by 
the outcome of what people want out of the system as opposed to like checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. Yes, we have all of these things. That's one part of it. The second part is just like if, if thinking about that outcome and, and the steps required. Like if we gave people a distributed tracing root cause analysis capabilities first, but they couldn't alert off of the data. In our mind, that's a product that nobody wants to use until you can alert off because it just, it didn't make any sense. But for us, that's how we, we went and, and decided to stop. And it was different from how we solved the problem at Uber, even though we're solving the same problem, same, same domain and created technologies, we just thought about it differently at Chronosphere. And I think that is one big learning that we had from our experience at Uber. So we'd love to maybe just taking a step back and thinking about your journey. It's been pretty crazy as far as just like looking at the fundraises and the traction. And I'm sure you're just constantly needing to up-level yourself as a CEO and maybe just some of your learnings about like things that you've done to up-level yourself and learn how to hyperscale a team. Happy to give that a crack. Heads up, first time founder, engineer at heart. So like I've never, definitely never done this before. Never done enterprise sales. Don't know anything about go to market, et cetera, et cetera. So started this two and a half years ago, zero experience at all. For me, at least, and, and again, like single data point, I take it with a huge grain of salt, how I see my job. So, so you can imagine as we started, uh, we first hired engineers and then product folks, because those are the things that myself and my co-founder knew well, we knew how to hire there well, right? So we hired well then, of course, a, a core part of the engineering team came with us from Uber and that helped a lot as well. And that sort of made sense at the beginning as well, because we had to build up product first. We couldn't, we weren't selling hosted M3. We're, we're trying to build a product. So the very first year was probably easy. There were learnings there, but there were mostly learnings from like a, how do we build a product as a SaaS product for external customers versus, you know, servicing internal teams at Uber. So, so there's some learnings there uh, for sure. But I think for me, where, where the learning really took off is when we had to focus on the go-to-market those side of things. And I had no idea what I was doing probably today, still have no idea what I am doing a lot of the time. But I'll, I'll say for, from that perspective, the way I look at it, at least personally is that my job is to go in there and try to do this stuff myself first, not because I can do it well. In fact, I do it terribly. It is enterprise sales, but it's also different in every company, different depending on the, the segment of the markets you're going for and things like that, right? So my job was like, there was no way I would know how to even hire the right leader and what to look for without experiencing sort of the pain points and learning that myself. So uh, the thing that I did was go and be the first of these people in, in each of these departments and, and, and really learn and do a terrible job. But that learning allowed me to then kick off a search for the right leader because I knew exactly what I was looking for. Like I knew enough about marketing perhaps and still my, and my knowledge is very little, but I knew enough to be dangerous and enough to know what we're looking for. And then that helped us bring in the right leaders in that place. And then once they're there, it's really like for them to drive. So I think a huge part of, of the learning comes from, from that. And, and that's sort of how I've approached that, you know, huge. And I'm sure this is advice that everybody gives is like recruiting. And, and it's not just recruiting and like bodies through the door, but like, you know, generally as a CEO, you, you, you're hiring the leader of a department or like the very first hire in that department. And like, you just can't get that wrong not just from my skill set perspective, but from like a, a people perspective, right? Like you make a bad culture hire, it just, it impacts the company it has huge impacts. When you look at like the growth that we've had 
we just we cannot afford to slow down in any particular way because the opportunity would just be gone like we're in a, a situation where there's a huge opportunity for us because there's a time for disruption that time is right now so if we don't capitalize on that we can't get to the same outcome slower it, we have to ex execute on it so i'll say that that's a huge part of that so just huge learning across the various roles and we're not there and then as you bring these leaders in like i'm learning from them they know more about their particular crafts than i do so i'm learning from them all, all the time of course i bring some value i hope to, to the table as well in terms of like the problem space and the domain and, and and things like that as well and i think that makes a pretty good partnership there this is one of the the interesting things about i think the vc world and the startup world is just like other founders other ceos are just so i think they like they feel pity perhaps because they've been in your situation before and they're just happy to give up time to help so I think that's just been super helpful as well along the way. That is just not something that I think you can go get outside of, of being a, a founder perhaps because they, these are very busy people with very limited time and they sort of just, they do it because I'm sure they, they knew exactly what, what you were going through at that point in time. And so you mentioned you can't get things wrong, but then not just you, right? You three all co-founders are all just engineers, right? Never started a company before. Like it's such a hard thing when you've never done all of this at all to try to get all of the rights, right? And also you were hiring at a very high pace. We went from 47 at the end of last year to we're over hundred now, and we'll probably end the year like one, 21, 30, something like that. Yeah, yeah, two years, we really grew a lot. You gotta make mistakes. Everything is completely not able to step on any possible mistakes here and there. What, I guess, what are, what are some mistakes? I did not want to say that we are not making mistakes and, and any mistake would be fatal. We're definitely making mistakes for sure. I, I think. We definitely made a plenty of, I would say, tactical business decisions that we have to course correct from. In fact, very early on, you can imagine in any young company's career, we had to make a tough decision at a certain point in time where there was a lot of demand for professional services support and just that. And we, we knew we wanted to build SaaS and it was just like, there was a lot of demand for that. It was very hard, you can imagine, or, or demand for our sort of proprietary version of that software as a license as opposed to SaaS, right? There's a lot of pressure and you can imagine like deals, big deals available to do that. And it was something that, that we had explored and we tried out a couple of times and we realized it wasn't the right move. We knew from the beginning it wasn't the right move, but it's always, it's so tempting. You're like, oh, let's just try it. Like, who knows? It may work out well. But those are the things that, that I would say that we learned from for sure, but we learned very quickly when we make these type of decisions, like, you know, we, we were sort of playing around with licensing a proprietary backend there. And, and we did that in a sort of a controlled manner with one or two, really assessed how that was before we, we tried it anymore, realized it wasn't the right direction for us and quickly stopped that, right? So it's, it's sort of like setting up the company for like trial and error as opposed to like full 180 pivot into something, realize it doesn't work, full 180 pivot back or something like that. But yeah, definitely a lot of business mistakes. Luckily, I'm happy to say that I feel very confident in the leaders we brought into the company and the early employees and no sort of cultural issues there. Awesome. And last question, you've brought up the importance of culture a few different times. How would you describe the Chronosphere culture? I laugh at that question because we're about to go into a company-wide exercise to, to sort of like capture them again. We have cultural values today, the way we did it, and just sort of myself and my co-founders philosophy on this is like, when we looked at culture, it wasn't like me and my co-founder came up with like a set of 10 rules or something like that, but like, Hey, this is the way it is. 
for us, company culture is just, it is what it, it is, right? And it's, it's, it's changing. And what we are trying to do is just attempt to capture that and the good parts of the culture we have to sort of move the company towards that direction. So the way we did our company cultural values is we took, we did a very bottoms up approach and we'd sat the whole company down and just said, hey, wh- what are behaviors that you like in the company right now? And we just like, just actual real world examples, nothing that's aspirational, right? Like what's happening right now that you'd like. And let's capture those and also talk about the things that we don't like to explicitly call them out. But let's capture those and sort of like turn them into our cultural values. So if you look at our website right now, there's five of them. I will say that they're up for a refresh because again, culture is something that just constantly evolves all the time. If you look at the state of the company, when we created those, it was only about less than 20 people in the company. So very different stage. We were pre-revenue. We were pre-pandemic. So everybody was in a physical office somewhere. And, you know, you can imagine a lot of those came to like celebrating the wins, a lot of sort of helping each other and things like that. And I'm not saying that the company doesn't do that now, but like, if you look at the company now, completely remote, uh, we have people in like, I don't know, like 15 states in the US, four countries around the world. A lot of the company had not met each other before physically and things like that. So we are due for that, for that exercise, I would say right now, for sure. I have my own view of what I think the culture is and the pieces that I like about it, but I don't really want to say those on the podcast right now because I sort of want to capture those across the company because it is what it is in in my mind and my co-founder as well, right? It's not an aspirational thing. It's not top-down rules that that we want to enforce or anything like that. And I think the point about culture not being this aspirational thing, but just taking note of what it actually is, is really interesting. And, and, you know, perhaps long-term, like you could iron them down. Like, you know, I, we used to work at Amazon and I think the leadership principles there work well and it served them well. But like in, in a stage where, you know, like two years ago, we were less than 20 people. Now we're a hundred people at these growth rates. The company is just changing so quickly. Like, especially in this phase, it doesn't, I don't know if it makes sense to like iron them down. Saying that I actually fully anticipate that when we do a reflection, they won't be completely the opposite of what we have today, but there's definitely going to be an iteration for sure. It's a different company from, from what we were two years ago. Thanks so much for coming to our podcast. You know, definitely had a lot of fun and hopefully you had fun as well. Yeah, no, this has been, it's been fantastic. It's actually one of the, uh, the other podcasts are going to hate me now, but this is one of the, the most fun podcasts uh, for sure. <laughs> right, definitely so, not editing that out. Thank sure. you. This has been a blast and uh, really great questions. No, no softball questions for sure. 